Part three, chapter seven and eight of Democracy in America, volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Democracy in America, volume two, by Alexis de Tocqueville. Translated by Henry Reeve. Part three, chapter seven. The influence of democracy on wages. Most of the remarks which I have already made in speaking of servants and masters may be applied to masters and workmen. As the gradations of the social scale come to be less observed, whilst the great sink the humble rise, and as poverty as well as opulence ceases to be hereditary, the distance both in reality and in opinion, which heretofore separated the workman from the master, is lessened every day. The workman conceives a more lofty opinion of his rights, of his future, of himself. He is filled with new ambition and with new desires. He is harassed by new wants. Every instant he views with longing eyes the profits of his employer, and in order to share them he strives to dispose of his labor at a higher rate, and he generally succeeds at length in the attempt. In democratic countries, as well as elsewhere, most of the branches of productive industry are carried on at a small cost, by men little removed from their wealth or education, above the level of those whom they employ. These manufacturing speculators are extremely numerous. Their interests differ. They cannot, therefore, easily concert or combine their exertions. On the other hand, the workmen have almost always some sure resources, which enable them to refuse to work when they cannot get what they conceive to be the fair price of their labor. In the constant struggle for wages which is going on between these two classes, their strength is divided, and success alternates from one to the other. It is even probable that in the end the interest of the working class must prevail, for the high wages which they have already obtained make them every day less dependent on their masters, and as they grow more independent they have greater facilities for obtaining a further increase of wages. I shall take for example that branch of productive industry which is still at the present day the most generally followed in France, and in almost all the countries of the world, I mean the cultivation of the soil. In France most of those who labor for hire in agriculture are themselves owners of certain plots of ground, which just enable them to subsist without working for any one else. When these laborers come to offer their services to a neighboring landowner or farmer, if he refuses them at a certain rate of wages, they retire to their own small property and await another opportunity. I think that upon the whole it may be asserted that a slow and gradual rise of wages is one of the general laws of democratic communities. In proportion as social conditions become more equal, wages rise, and as wages are higher, social conditions become more equal. But a great and gloomy exception occurs in our own time. I have shown in a preceding chapter that aristocracy, expelled from political society, has taken refuge in certain departments of productive industry, and has established its sway there under another form. This powerfully affects the rate of wages. As a large capital is required to embark in the great manufacturing speculations to which I allude, the number of persons who enter upon them is exceedingly limited. As their number is small, they can easily concert together, and fix the rate of wages as they please. Their workmen, on the contrary, are exceedingly numerous, and the number of them is always increasing, for from time to time an extraordinary run of business takes place, during which wages are inordinately high, and they attract the surrounding population to the factories. But when once men have embraced that line of life, we have already seen that they cannot quit it again, because they soon contract habits of body and mind which unfit them for any other sort of toil. 
These men have generally but little education and industry, with but few resources. They stand, therefore, almost at the mercy of the master. When competition or other fortuitous circumstance lessens his profits, he can reduce the wages of his workmen almost at pleasure, and make from them what he loses by the chances of business. Should the workmen strike, the master, who is a rich man, can very well wait without being ruined, until necessity brings them back to him. But they must work day by day, or they die, for their only property is in their hands. They have been long impoverished by oppression, and the poorer they become, the more easily may they be oppressed they can never escape from this fatal cycle of cause and consequence. It is not then surprising that wages, after having sometimes suddenly risen, are permanently lowered in this branch of industry, whereas in other callings the price of labor, which generally increases but little, is nevertheless constantly augmented. This state of dependence and wretchedness, in which a part of the manufacturing population of our time lives, forms an exception to the general rule contrary to the state of all the rest of the community. But for this very reason, no circumstance is more important, or more deserving of the especial consideration of the legislator, for when the whole of society is in motion, it is difficult to keep any one class stationary, and when the greater number of men are opening new paths to fortune, it is no less difficult to make the few support in peace their wants and their desires. CHAPTER Eight, INFLUENCE OF DEMOCRACY ON KINDRED I have just examined the changes which the equality of conditions produces in the mutual relations of the several members of the community amongst democratic nations, and amongst the Americans in particular. I would now go deeper, and inquire into the closer ties of kindred. My object here is not to seek for new truths, but to show in what manner facts already known are connected with my subject. It has been universally remarked that in our time the several members of a family stand upon an entirely new footing towards each other, that the distance which formerly separated a father from his sons has been lessened, and that paternal authority, if not destroyed, is at least impaired. Something analogous to this, but even more striking, may be observed in the United States. In America the family, in the Roman and aristocratic signification of the word, does not exist. All that remains of it are a few vestiges in the first years of childhood, when the father exercises, without opposition, that absolute domestic authority which the feebleness of his children renders necessary, and which their interest, as well as his own incontestable superiority, warrants. But as soon as the young American approaches manhood, the ties of filial obedience are relaxed day by day. Master of his thoughts, he is soon master of his conduct. In America there is, strictly speaking, no adolescence. At the close of boyhood the man appears, and begins to trace out his own path. It would be an error to suppose that this is preceded by a domestic struggle, in which the son has obtained by a sort of moral violence the liberty that his father refused him. The same habits, the same principles which impel the one to assert his independence, predispose the other to consider the use of that independence as an incontestable right. The former does not exhibit any of those rancorous or irregular passions which disturb men long after they have shaken off an established authority. The latter feels none of that bitter and angry regret which is apt to survive a bygone power. The father foresees the limits of his authority long beforehand, and when the time arrives he surrenders it without a struggle. The son looks forward to the exact period at which he will be his own master, and he enters upon his freedom without precipitation and without effort as a possession which is his own, and which no one seeks to wrest from him. 
It may perhaps not be without utility to show how these changes which take place in family relations are closely connected with the social and political revolution which is approaching its consummation under our own observation. There are everywhere great social principles which a people either introduces everywhere or tolerates nowhere. In countries which are aristocratically constituted with all the gradations of rank, the government never makes a direct appeal to the mass of the governed. As men are united together, it is enough to lead the foremost, the rest will follow. This is equally applicable to the family, as to all aristocracies which have a head. Amongst aristocratic nations, social institutions recognize, in truth, no one in the family but the father. Children are received by society at his hands. Society governs him, he governs them. Thus the parent has not only a natural right, but he acquires a political right to command them. He is the author and the support of his family, but he is also its constituted ruler. In democracies, where the government picks out every individual singly from the mass, to make him subservient to the general laws of the community, no such intermediate person is required. A father is there, in the eye of the law, only a member of the community, older and richer than his sons. When most of the conditions of life are extremely unequal, and the inequality of these conditions is permanent, the notion of a superior grows upon the imagination of men. If the law invested him with no privileges, custom and public opinion would concede them. Men differ but little from each other, and do not always remain in dissimilar conditions of life. The general notion of a superior becomes weaker and less distinct. It is vain for legislation to strive to place him who obeys very much beneath him who commands. The manners of the time bring the two men nearer to one another, and draw them daily towards the same level. Although legislation of an aristocratic people should grant no peculiar privileges to the heads of families, I shall not be the less convinced that their power is more respected and more extensive than in a democracy. For I know that, whatsoever the laws may be, superiors always appear higher and inferiors lower in aristocracies than amongst democratic nations. When men live more for the remembrance of what has been than for the care of what it is, and when they are more given to attend what their ancestors thought than to think themselves, the father is the natural and necessary tie between the past and the present, the link by which the ends of these two chains are connected. In aristocracies, then, the father is not only the civil head of the family, but the oracle of its traditions, the expounder of its customs, the arbiter of its manners. He is listened to with deference, he is addressed with respect, and the love which is felt for him is always tempered with fear. When the condition of society becomes democratic, and men adopt as their general principle that it is good and lawful to judge of all things for one's self, using former points of belief not as a rule of faith, but simply as a means of information, the power which the opinions of a father exercise over those of his sons diminishes as well as his legal power. Perhaps the subdivision of estates, which democracy brings with it, contributes more than anything else to change the relations existing between a father and his children. When the property of the father, of the family, is scanty, his son and himself constantly live in the same place, and share the same occupations. Habit and necessity bring them together, and force them to hold constant communication. The inevitable consequence is a sort of familiar intimacy, which renders authority less absolute, and which can ill be reconciled with the external forms of respect. Now, in democratic countries, the class of those who are possessed of small fortunes is precisely that which gives strength to the notions, and a particular direction to the manners, of the community. 
This class makes its opinions preponderate as universally as its will, and even those who are most inclined to resist its commands are carried away in the end by its example. I have known eager opponents of democracy who allowed their children to address them with perfect colloquial equality. Thus, at the same time that the power of aristocracy is declining, the austere, the conventional, and the legal part of parental authority vanishes, and a species of equality prevails around the domestic hearth. I know not, upon the whole, whether society loses by the change, but I am inclined to believe that man individually is a gainer by it. I think that in proportion as manners and laws become more democratic, the relation of father and son becomes more intimate and more affectionate. Rules and authority are less talked of, confidence and tenderness are oftentimes increased, and it would seem that the natural bond is drawn closer in proportion as the social bond is loosened. In a democratic family the father exercises no other power than that which men love to invest the affection and experience of age. His orders would perhaps be disobeyed, but his advice is for the most part authoritative. Though he be not hedged in with ceremonial respect, his sons at least accost him with confidence. No settled form of speech is appropriated to the mode of addressing him, but they speak to him constantly, and are ready to consult him day by day. The master and the constituted ruler have vanished, the father remains. Nothing more is needed, in order to judge of the difference between the two states of society in this respect, than to peruse the family correspondence of aristocratic ages. The style is always correct, ceremonious, stiff, and so cold that the natural warmth of the heart can hardly be felt in the language. The language, on the contrary, addressed by a son to his father in democratic countries, is always marked by mingled freedom, familiarity, and affection, which at once show that new relations have sprung up in the bosom of the family. A similar revolution takes place in the mutual relations of children. In aristocratic families, as well as in aristocratic society, every place is marked out beforehand. Not only does the father occupy a separate rank, in which he enjoys extensive privileges, but even the children are not equal amongst themselves. The age and sex of each irrevocably determine his rank, and secure to him certain privileges. Most of these distinctions are abolished or diminished by democracy. In aristocratic families the eldest son, inheriting the greater part of the property, and almost all the rights of the family, becomes the chief, and to a certain extent the master of his brothers. Greatness and power are for him, for them mediocrity and dependence. Nevertheless, it would be wrong to suppose that, amongst aristocratic nations, the privileges of the eldest son are advantageous to himself alone, or that they excite nothing but envy and hatred in those around them. The eldest son commonly endeavours to procure wealth and power for his brothers, because the general splendour of the house is reflected back on him who represents it. The younger sons seek to back the elder brother in all his undertakings, because the greatness and power of the head of the family better enable him to provide for all its branches. The different members of an aristocratic family are therefore very closely bound together. Their interests are connected, their minds agree, but their hearts are seldom in harmony. Democracy also binds brothers to each other, but by very different means. Under democratic laws all the children are perfectly equal, and consequently independent. Nothing brings them forcibly together, but nothing keeps them apart, and as they have the same origin, as they are trained under the same roof, as they are treated with the same care, and as no peculiar privilege distinguishes or divides them, the affection and youthful intimacy of early years easily springs up between them. Scarcely any opportunities occur to break the tie thus formed at the outset of life, for their brotherhood brings them daily together, without embarrassing them. 
it is not then by interest but by common associations and by the free sympathy of opinion and of taste that democracy unites brothers to each other it divides their inheritance but it allows their hearts and minds to mingle together such is the charm of these democratic manners that even the partisans of aristocracy are caught by it and after having experienced it for some time they are by no means tempted to revert to the respectful and frigid observance of aristocratic families they would be glad to retain the domestic habits of democracy even if they might throw off its social conditions and its laws but these elements are indissolubly united and it is impossible to enjoy the former without enduring the latter the remarks i have made on filial love and fraternal affection are applicable to all the passions which emanate spontaneously from human nature itself if a certain mode of thought or feeling is the result of some peculiar condition of life when that condition is altered nothing whatever remains of the thought or feeling thus a law may bind two members of a community very closely to one another but that law being abolished they stand asunder nothing was more strict than the tie which united the vassal to the lord under the feudal system at the present day the two men know not each other the fear the gratitude and the affection which formerly connected them have vanished and not a vestige of the tie remains such however is not the case with those feelings which are natural to mankind whenever a law attempts to tutor these feelings in any particular manner it seldom fails to weaken them by attempting to add to their intensity it robs them of some of their elements for they are never stronger than when left to themselves democracy which destroys or obscures almost all the old conventional rules of society and which prevents men from readily assenting to new ones entirely effaces most of the feelings to which these conventional rules have given rise but it only modifies some others and frequently imparts to them a degree of energy and sweetness unknown before perhaps it is not impossible to condense into a single proposition the whole meaning of this chapter and of several others that preceded it democracy loosens social ties but it draws the ties of nature more tight it brings kindred more closely together whilst it places the various members of the community more widely apart end of part 3 chapter 7 and 8